All right, welcome to Old School Jake Uger, Ben Mangers with you guys. Uh, obviously sponsored by shoptyt.com. Unreal uh, social distancing mass. Uh, like they're flying off the shelves. If you can read this, you're not practicing social distancing on the mask. Hello. Uh, no justice, no peace on the mask. Election is coming, Game of Thrones style. Now, this is not Shop TYT, but this is our press on t shirt. So uh, if you give to tyt.com slash go, uh, that's to keep us healthy and strong during this coronavirus issues and through everything, digital media is super hard. You keep us on air. If you go to give 127 bucks at tyt.com slash go, you get one of these t-shirts. And if you give $1,000, you go on the donor wall and you get a hoodie with uh, we press on and that's super cool mic. So that's tyt.com slash go. Okay. Uh, Ben, uh, lots of unimportant topics for this uh, week, uh, but somehow they do wind up becoming a little bit uh, important as we talk. Uh, I'd like to start with tags on rugs. With with uh, just tags on rugs? Yes, obviously. Yeah, I right. I'm pretty sure you knew this was coming. Uh, as in the whole country, when when are they going to talk about tags on rugs? Are um, you gonna? Are you gonna? I'm gonna predict. Your stance on tags on rugs. Okay. Uh, Is your answer locked in? Yeah, I've locked it here. I'll uh, I'll write it down. Because okay. you know I like to cheat on these things. Well, that's true. Now, first of all, I like that um, you're writing down an answer for something that doesn't even like. I'm not sure you even know what I mean by tags on rugs, let alone yeah. what the control yeah, is. Um. Go ahead, you talk amongst yourself. Okay, all right. But Ben <laughs> is writing right. down what I'm apparently going to say on a topic that seems nearly inexplicable. So right. welcome to old school, let's see if he gets it right. Okay, Okay. so here's what I'm actually talking about. Rugs is a little bit misleading. I'm mainly focusing on the tags, okay? So those are the things that you see that are on your pillow, your sheets, your rugs. The little label, I have never read it in my life. I probably did at some point, but 40 years ago, I don't remember. But the one thing I do remember though, and it's a searing memory is, it is illegal to get rid of those tags. And I, 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 even when I was throwing one away today, I, uh, I, did, I didn't bother reading it. But I remember thinking, and so this is how it came up. There's a little rug in my uh, bathroom and the, the tag had come off of it. And I thought, oh, I gotta throw that away. Oh, but I don't think I'm allowed to. That's illegal. And so, but wait, I'm a grown up and I just realized there are no cops in my bathroom. I can throw it away. And so I've got questions and comments off of that, but that was the essence of Tags on Rugs. What did you predict I was going to say about? Well, I'm wrong, but I think the spirit is uh, is true. I wonder if people will be able to read that. Um, so that says, uh, no, you're against them, anti them, against, just to be clear. And then finally, uh, rip them off for the love of God. Um, no, no, I don't, look, I actually think that you're, Right enough that you get all full credit. I mean, that that's that's 80, 85 percent right. Yeah, because it's, part part of it is that I was just a part of my. First of all, it's a great point. And if you'd said pillows, I would uh, mattresses. I definitely would have, because in my head, I'm sure none of this is really true. 
This is probably totally an urban legend. I'd always heard it with mattresses. It's even in the movie Fletch. You know, like, you know, I'm taking off, the, I'm pretty sure that's a crime there as he's trying to sort of reverse a situation where he's about to get shot. Um, so, but to that point, it's like they, uh, they're unsightly. They like stick out of the end of the rug or they come out slightly of the pillowcase. Like, and maybe we're all hesitant to do it because we think we're violating some law, but just go ahead. Go ahead and take them off. You're going to be okay. Yeah. And, and so sometimes, often, but not always, uh, there's a larger point buried in a small, nonsensical issue that we discuss. And in this case, um, what I realized in that moment was, my God, we have been so programmed and and we've been programmed for obedience and to not even question things. And um, and so we do talk about this more often on the Young Turks and, the, and some of the other shows we have in the network. And But I'm not sure I've ever explained it quite this way. So the, the way that I view humans is that we have some hardware, which is our DNA and that gives us some genetic predispositions. Um, but then the rest is software, uh, our operating system. And that operating system is based on identity and culture. And and where does that identity come from? Where does that culture come from? It comes from family, friends, but a giant part of it is the media. Um, and, and when I say media, I don't just mean news media. I mean, my kids today watch, YouTube shows and Netflix and video games endlessly. So when my son does the L for loser and does the dance, it drives me nuts. I hate it when he calls people losers and I try to get it out of his system. But the media in that case is overwhelming. They're writing a software. When you win, you call someone a loser and you do this L thing, right? And and so in our software, we were told, we were programmed, do not rip that annoying tag off. And we all listen. And we all listen for decade after decade. But it A, it doesn't make sense. And if you just put one second of thought into it, you would know that the cops are not going to come into your house and arrest you for taking off the tag from the pillow. All right, so you're a smart guy. I've looked it up. This took five seconds to get an answer. And when you read it, it's obviously true. It's not an urban legend. There have been tags on mattresses and maybe on, I only heard it about mattresses, but maybe it's true about pillows and rugs. Um, So knowing that it's true, what is the reason for the law? See, I reflected on that for about half a second um, uh, (laughs) in the midst of just remembering to write down tags on rugs to, to talk about on old school. And I thought maybe it wasn't meant for us. Maybe it was meant for the uh, the retail stores. That it was important for us to read those warnings on there. No, and you got it. You got. I want you to stop talking because all you'll do is undo what you have essentially gotten correct. Um, it's not meant for the consumer. It's meant for the seller. And the reason, which is probably too hard to get, is that way back in the 19th century and the early 20th century. When like mattresses were new, <laughs> right? You know, people are like sleeping on bedding before. Um, uh, that manufacturers would use material from old beddings and old mattresses and then sell them as new 
So they'd have to take the tags off and put on a new tag to suggest that people were buying it new. So their way around that, the law's way to protect the consumer was to say, no, you can't take the tag off a mattress ever. So that you would always know if you were getting, if you went to buy a new mattress to ensure that you would be getting a new mattress. Once you buy the mattress, if you're not gonna resell it, you go ahead and take that tag off. <laughs> you know what? I swear to God, I feel more free. I feel more free right now than I did before we started this show. So America, you're welcome. We just gave you a piece of freedom. More yeah. freedom than Trump's ever given you. Rip uh, the tags, rip the goddamn tags off. Rip every one of them off. <laughs> just don't reset, that's not cool. By the way, that's like the it's like an early consumer financial protection board move. Like we can, you know what, let's go ahead and thank Elizabeth Warren for that. I'm pretty sure it was a couple hundred years before, or at least a hundred years before. But yes, yeah, uh, I like them a lot. I love seeing pictures of um, cities from before, from a hundred years before, two hundred years before, etc. And I particularly love it of LA because I never stop being amazed at how new LA is mm-hmm. uh, and how it sprung up seemingly overnight into one of the largest cities in the world. And so I bought a book, uh, this is my second book and I barely ever read. Uh, you know, I can't get past one page unless it's got Jenk written all over it. I just, I don't look at it. Uh, <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, that's Trump. Uh, no, I read plenty, but I don't have time for a lot of books because I read dozens of articles every day, let alone the business stuff. So that part is true about the books. So this is, it's a bit stunning that I bought a book on a second, uh, on the same topic, a second book. Uh, and it's early Los Angeles. And so the first book was more about the politics of it and the history of it and the labor movement. It was really, really amazing and the development of LA, I loved it. This one is mainly a picture book because that's what I have time for these days, I've regressed. And, uh, but it's got pictures of early LA and it has a timeline of how LA developed. And to Ben's point about how you know, I don't know what the number is, but about a hundred years ago that they were reselling mattresses and it was like this newfangled invention. Like, hey, it turns out we can sleep on something that's not the floor. Holy, shit, nobody ever thought of that, right? <laughs> uh, well, a hundred years ago, here's what was in LA. Nothing, absolutely nothing. Uh, seeing pictures from about 1920, 19. Well, you can go past as far back as you want from 1920. There is, there'd be like one house on on Beverly Drive. I don't, maybe it was on Canyon, and that's it. The rest of it's empty farmland, and and empty farmland as far as the eye can see. A couple of broken down houses. Coldwater Canyon, if you've been to LA, is like jam packed. Everything's jam packed here, right? Had one house in 1916, and so. God damn, the world is moving so much faster than we realize. I mean, it's only 100 years later, but actually when I moved to LA, it was around 2000, right? 2001 when we both moved to LA. And so that was only 80 years from there being no houses here, nothing here to a gigantic, unbelievable city as far as I can see. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, so even some major early movie stars, and of course the film industry moving out here uh, had as much to do with LA's growth as anything. Um, 
And you know, one of the earliest movies ever made, I think, called The Squaw Man. I'm gonna make sure I get that right because it's a it's an important part of history, Jank, and I don't want to have it wrong. But yeah, so a Cecil B. DeMille film, The The Squaw Man, 1914, and DeMille was working. He had a couple of partners back in his offices in New York, and they wanted to make a western. The Squaw Man. So they're like, well, we're going to go out and we're going to head west and make it there. And they went to Arizona. That was their plan, I think, to Flagstaff, if I'm not mistaken. They go to Flagstaff and I guess they got there, they took a train and they got there too late in the year and the ground was too hard. Like they couldn't build any sets, you know. And it was snowing. Uh, so they left and they went to LA and he found a barn, which he rented for like $100 a month or $100 or $10 a month, I don't remember. And he wrote back to his, I think it was $100 a month and he wired back to his partners back in New York. I found a barn here in a place called Hollywood, Hollywood land, whatever it was. And his partners wrote back like, hey, you're wasting time there. This sounds, don't stop wasting our money. You can rent the barn for like two months, then you gotta give it back. And he made a movie and that was it. And then the weather was great and they could make it seem cold. They could make it seem warm. Everybody liked it here. But you look at some of those photos from early movie stars in the 20s into the 30s and some of those roads around Hollywood, they're on horseback on dirt roads on you know Hollywood and Vine. You know, and guys you know, John Wayne, characters you know. Yeah. yeah, so LA really ramped up in the 19, well, first of all, in the 20s, but then massive growth at the beginning of the 1930s. And when sound came and, and, and Los Angeles fully secured its place as the home of the, of the movie industry. You know, and it was all, and the valley, which, you know, if the San Fernando Valley part of Los Angeles were its own city, I think it'd be the fourth biggest city in the country. Yeah. Um, you know, um, and uh, that was just all orange groves, all yeah. orange groves. Yeah. Let alone the Antelope Valley. Um, <laughs> okay, Antelope Valley, not that large. Uh, uh, anyway, uh, so what just what congressional district is that in? I just happens to be in the twenty fifth district, Ben. Oh, um, is it twenty five? All right. Yeah. Um, so D W Griffith was a guy who made Birth of a Nation, uh, and and so. I want to actually ask you about that as well in a second. But the way that he connects to this story is in the first book I read about early LA, the first boom of LA actually was not movies, it was oil. And for a while, LA had produced, I think, about a quarter of the oil of either the country or the world. It was it was amazing. And and you'll still see oil drills in LA. I remember when I first came here in 2001, I was driving around and I'm like, there's an oil rig on La Cienega yeah, in the middle the of airport. the city, that's insane. Yeah, yeah and, it, and it turns out it's not insane. That's how LA got to be famous in the first place, is through oil. And um, and so, and in fact, Beverly Hills, I found out in the second book, uh, they bought it, they bought this giant farm hoping to find oil. Uh, they were deeply disappointed that they didn't find oil and had to turn it into a residential area called Beverly Hills. And they're like, all right, let's try this and see what happens. <laughs> so, right, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and Beverly Hills High School actually has an oil rig in the middle of it. Uh, and and they finally had to yeah. tear that down because it was causing cancer all the way into the 2000s. Um, so, uh, but. Uh, Cecil DeMille and D.W. Griffith came uh, soon thereafter. 
and and then the movie industry moved here. And the same story with Griffith, where he was like, they were mainly shooting movies out of New Jersey. And right. New Jersey and was the film capital of the world before uh, before Hollywood. I'm telling you, Jersey is better than you realize. A hundred years ago, um, so <laughs> but they had the same epiphany. They're like, wait, we sh- don't shoot movies for half the year because of winter. Why don't we move west where there is no winter, and then we could double our profits? And so they did, and and it was kind of obvious. But and so and then obviously for anyone who comes out here, the weather is so good. So much better than Arizona, for example, both because it doesn't get as hot and it doesn't get as cold, that it becomes kind of a no brainer. And that's how it became the second largest city in the country, seemingly overnight, along with the incredible change of incredible pace of change that we're broadly talking about. But I want to actually go back to D.W. Griffith. So, Ben, I hope I'm not getting you in trouble here, but what's the latest in the movie world, um, like, am I allowed to say he is a terrible person or would oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, rebel at that? I mean, he, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. You know, he made some amazing movies, some really breakthrough movies, and they weren't all terrible. Um, at all, um, and the problem, you know, the so I wanted to look up what the because my favorite part of the Birth of a Nation is that it was based on a a novel from about ten years earlier by a guy named Thomas Dixon Jr. called The Klansman, a historical romance of the Ku Klux Klan. Like you would think, even by 1915, that like no, we're not going to make a movie about that book. Like that's. You know, and their thing was, no, let's make a movie of that book. We'll just change the title. <laughs> you know, yeah. and, uh, and we'll I get around ask, it that was way. Was it a romance within the clan or a romance of the clan? I think it's the romance of the, like, oh, the clan. Yeah. <laughs> just trying to preserve the old Southern way, like that scroll that comes up at the beginning of Gone with the Wind, which is really the, the I, to me, I think the, the main reason that HBO Max pulled it pending some. Uh, curation of it. Um, so yeah, I mean the movie is brutal. It's brutal. I mean you know it was it was 1915 and most people didn't find it brutal, right? The good ones did. Uh, you know it screened at the White House for Woodrow Wilson. You know and he thought it was a big hit. You know mostly because they're dazzled by I can't believe what we're seeing, right? I can't believe that movies can show us spectacle. Um, uh, but obviously yeah, it's uh, it, it's brutal. Yeah, for for those who don't know, it's the first feature length film, and and I love the old stereotypes. I don't mean racial ones. I hate those. Um, I, I mean at that time, to, and I don't know if you're allowed to give D.W. Griffith credit for anything now. And so this is also an interesting topic. Um, everybody assumed that movies had to be really short, uh, kind of like. YouTube videos, um, and so when Griffith said no, I can actually make them really long and people will watch them. They're like, "Oh, you're nuts, dude! That's never gonna happen." He's like, "But what if it's a really compelling story about how much the Klan kicks ass?" <laughs> and he did Birth of a Nation. It's a deeply racist movie. That's where blackface partly comes from, where there's a white actor in blackface and he's a 
a savage who rapes white women, etc. I mean, it is awful. Uh, and but it, but to Ben's point, at the time, it was seen as oh yeah, huh, okay, yeah, well that's interesting entertainment. Well, that's a breakthrough in how long the movie can be. Right. So, but it wasn't the first. It's among the first, but just but it's certainly the most significant of the early ones, and certainly and and from an advancement of technology, a dazzling. Yeah, most movies were one reel or two reel, and a reel is basically ten minutes. Um, they just thought people wouldn't sit through a whole thing, right? You know, because it's, uh, you know, it's not a play. There's no talking, um, and uh, obviously they were wrong. I mean, they're wrong all the time. I mean, they're right a lot, but they're wrong about so many things. And they're not really. They have no research. It's just a presumption uh, of what it is. Uh, and to be clear, there there were plenty of people who objected to it. It was just people who get dismissed. The NAACP, not surprisingly, was, uh, you know, they tried to. If I'm not mistaken, they tried to stop it. Uh, in a number of cities, or maybe stop it completely. Yeah, and so when when you look back at that real quick, Ben, um, when not you, but when the industry, whoever that you know that is, looks back at D.W. Griffith, or or Riefenstahl, if I've said that right, mm-hmm. um, uh, are you allowed to say that they had good parts? Are you allowed to say they were monsters? Or do you have to kind of straddle it and and say, well, they were good filmmakers, but they're terrible people, etc. I think you know you say a a, 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 a more a, a more curated form of the last thing. You know, I think you can say they were good filmmakers, and I, I just think art is separate from all this stuff, and especially collaborative art, right? Because you know when you when you pull Gone with the Wind. Uh, you pull the first Oscar-winning performance uh, from an African American, the first African American to win any uh, Oscar, let alone a performer, Hattie McDaniel's role. So, I, I mean, the, there is incredibly important. I think that we see uh, Gone with the Wind. Uh, so, I mean, I totally agree with what HBO Max did because they're not saying we're never going to see it. But if you're going to see it, we're going to put it in context, and that's that's bad. That's what it needs. And if you watch the first three minutes of that movie, you're like, holy crap! Like people like this. I mean, it is not the the celebration of slavery and the turning it into just a you know a a, a time of 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 wistful romance and everybody was happy is as bad at times as a birth of a nation as birth of a nation and in fact worse in many regards because it's 1939 and and later that year you know our allies who became our allies went to war with Nazi Germany it's insane. Yeah, I have a couple more things to say about that, including about Aunt Jemima. For some of you, this is the end of the the show. Obviously, there's more. Uh, it'll be more episodes, and and you can get the whole uh, episode uninterrupted if you're a member of the Young Turks at tyt.com/slash/join.